are listening to Shining Star Community Church English Ministry Sunday Message. Please visit us at www.shiningstar.life. Last week I introduced to you all our new series on Galatians. Galatians is as Philip Ryken said, do you remember? It's a book for recovering Pharisees. Meaning if you think that Christianity is a performance-based religion, as in what God does for us is dependent on what we do for him, then you might be a Pharisee. So if you recall Jeff Foxworthy and his You Might Be stand-up bit, I took the liberty of using that and also gained some information from a, uh, a Harold Vaughn, who is a Christian blogger from his website. And so I'm going to go through a bunch of things here. And this isn't to joke around here because there's nothing really no joke, but I'm just using kind of like the stand-up platform. And I want you to think about it for a moment, okay, as I, as I kind of quickly go over these things. And I do have several here. You might be a Pharisee if you are glad you are better than others or if your prayers are more like self-talk than speaking with God or your sins seem so small when placed beside the really big sins of others or that you rationalize that Christians who don't agree with you are all compromisers and sinners or you routinely dismiss anyone who would dare to point out a blind spot of yours. You might be a Pharisee if you verbally rip apart the people who disagree with you or if you rehearse your virtues when you should be confessing your sins or you take delight in checking off your religious to-do list or the standard you use to judge others is not the Bible, it's not Jesus, but is you. You might be a Pharisee if prayer is more about you and your perception than about God and his praise. You might be a Pharisee if you assume your discipline and preciseness indicates true spirituality. Or if your memory is excellent when it comes to remembering your good works. Or if your glory is more in appearance than in heart. Or if you are obsessed with externals but blind to the internal reality of your own soul. You might be a Pharisee if outward righteousness is more important than inward heart holiness. You might be a Pharisee if you find it difficult to fellowship with those that are different than yourself. You might be a Pharisee if you believe that you are better or superior to others. Or that you know more than others. Or that you are in any way just better. You might be a Pharisee if you keep a list of your religious activities on the tip of your tongue. You might be a Pharisee if you justify yourself by condemning others. Or if you build up for yourself and your group by tearing other people down. You might be a Pharisee if you despise people who don't hold to your same convictions. Or if your conscience is silent when you accuse and verbally abuse God's people. Or if your excuse, or you excuse your arrogant behavior because you hold to the correct position. Or if you call your uncanny ability to catalog the faults of other people in the name of discernment. You might be a Pharisee if you thank God that you are not like other men or women. You might be a Pharisee if you really like to hear yourself pray. You might be a Pharisee if your sense of self-importance blinds you to the fact of how repulsive you are to others, or if you always come out in a favorable light when you compare yourself with other people, or if you feel your anger is justified because you are right and those you are angry with are wrong, or if you cling to emotional infallibility, the belief that whatever you feel in your heart, it must be right. You might be a Pharisee if you believe a person really pleases God by simply obeying all the rules. You might be a Pharisee if you feel the trail of broken relationships in your past is due to someone else's fault, but not, never yours. You might be a Pharisee if you visually and intellectually comply in order to gain 
acceptance and approval. You might be a Pharisee if you're so caught up in your own circle that you do anything, and I mean anything, to maintain your reputation. You might be a Pharisee if you are dominated by the fear of man. And lastly, you might be a Pharisee if you are insulted at the notion that you might be a Pharisee. There is only one solution to that legalistic tendency, that Pharisee-like nature of ours, and that is the opposite nature. What is that? The nature of Christ. You want or distance yourself from these pharisaical, legalistic type of life and living, then become more like Christ. Turn to your neighbor and say, let's become more like Christ. Now, let's be honest. After saying all that, how many of you guys thought, yeah, I think I do check off a couple of those at least? I certainly have. You realize that most of the issues our church has faced really has nothing to do with theological differences, but really with an indifference in the heart. Pharisees were always caught up in the outside, the reputation, the public opinion, rather than the spiritual relationship with God. And I don't know how many times that someone would come to me for counseling, and they'll come to me because they want me to mediate a problem that they have with another individual. And usually I hear them out, of course, and I go, okay, and I'm sorry that's happened, and so on and so forth. But I usually kind of avoid going straight into, yeah, that person's scum. Or I side with them, because honestly, there's two sides of the story. But what I normally do as a pastor is simply ask them, hey, how are you doing spiritually? And they get caught off. What are you talking about? I'm talking about I got problem. I got, a, I got beef with this person from our church, from our ministry. I go, yeah, no, I get that. How are you doing spiritually? Pastor David, that's not what I'm talking about. I go, but that's what I'm talking about. How are you doing spiritually? And so they get irritated. And they try to refocus me, get me to refocus on the person who did wrong to them or whatever to them. I know that many of you guys are wonderful. Let's, let's encourage each other for a moment. Turn to your name and say, you're wonderful. And say, and I commend you. And I do. I do. I do think you're wonderful. And I do commend you guys on your genuine love and desire to serve and love one another. But again, these Pharisaic tendencies will and do creep up from time to time. Am I right? They do. That's just the reality. I've spent the past few minutes describing the nature of these Pharisees in order for all of us, including myself, to open our eyes to the reality that we are just as guilty. We are. Because we have a hard time focusing on our vertical relationship with God rather than our, and we end up focusing really on our horizontal relationship with other people. And until we admit this, and until we admit this problem of ours that we're so heavily influenced by other people and that we so heavily want to get the approval of man, that we have the fear of man, until we're willing to admit this and know and, and repent to God and seek his grace and truth and lead us, that would lead us towards Christ-likeness, then this series on Galatians will really be wasted on us. This means for the next nearly half year, Every Sunday, as we go over the words God has delivered to us through the book of Galatians, when I lift up the opening prayer before I preach, we all need to be in a place of deep humility. Amen? 
We need to surrender our pride. We need to surrender our self-justifications, our own accomplishments, our comfort, even the hardships of our lives that we use to corner God into doing our bidding because he now somehow owes us. We need to give all that up. Give it all up. And that's the only way the word of God will be able to work through us is when you surrender to God completely. And I'm talking about everything. There is nothing that you can boast about when you go before the Lord. There's nothing. So before every Sunday sermon, I want to encourage you and challenge you all to ask God and to pray to him by saying this. And actually, I want you guys to bow your heads with me as I pray this little prayer as we start our series here. Okay, let's pray. Lord, I know I can be blinded by my pride. I know that I have sins I have a hard time repenting of. And I keep thinking that being good or doing good things would offset the things in my life that are well, unholy and sinful. May your words pierce through me. May it pierce through my hardness of heart and the blindness that I possess. May the Holy Spirit lead me to the amazing and wonderful revelation that Christ is all I need. Lead me to submit to your word today. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. All God's people said. So this afternoon, we'll begin with just a small bite, the introduction to this book, all right? People might think that this is just a greeting, like what Apostle Paul just said, like, hey, David, or dear David. I always feel awkward when people email me and they say, hey, David, and I respond, hey, back. I, I feel like I should do something different. But we think that's all it is. It's just a very general, generic type of greeting salutation. But we're going to discover that's more than that. Because the traditional salutation that would widely be used back then would be Paul the Apostle to the churches in Galatia, grace and peace to you. And that's a wonderful phrase, grace and peace to you, and I'll explain a little bit later. But turn to your neighbor and say, grace and peace to you. I'm going to say to you all, and I want you guys to say it back and say, and unto you. Grace and peace be to you. Praise the Lord. And so we've heard that greeting in all of Apostle Paul's letters, which is why it's easy to just read right past it and get to the meaty parts of the letter. But when you look at the greeting, you'll see that Apostle Paul will change and he'll kind of modify that phrase or that salutation or that greeting because he's trying to segue us right into the point about which he is writing. Paul's greeting actually lays out two important truths just in the introduction that really summarizes the two themes of the book of Galatians, interestingly. And that is this. Number one, the authority of the gospel. And secondly, the radical nature of the gospel. It's the authority and the radical nature. So our first point is this. Our first point is that the gospel comes straight from Jesus. Amen? It doesn't come from me. It certainly doesn't come from you. It doesn't come from anyone else but from Jesus. So Apostle Paul, okay, get this. On his first miss missionary journey... He had preached and he had planted churches in the area of Galatia, in the cities of Galatia. Cities like Antioch or Pisidian or Lystra or Derbe and Iconium. And the people there were actually growing really well in faith. They were believing in Jesus. They were worshiping Jesus. They were becoming radical followers of Jesus. Jesus, you are all I want. You are everything I need. But then all of a sudden one day, as some time passed by, other teachers or other missionaries had begun to come from these other cities into those cities with a set of different ideas. 
So they will come and they will say one thing. All the people will be scratching their heads. And they'll say, but Apostle Paul said something else. And then they would say, Paul who? Who is this Paul you're talking about? Who is this Paul you keep referring to? He sounds like some stupid renegade teacher with some crazy ideas. No, 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 no. You got to listen to us because we are coming from the mother church from Jerusalem. We're the authority. And so Apostle Paul, he hears of all this, of all these false teachings and these false doctrines and false theologies from these false teachers and false missionaries. So he begins to write these letters to be circulated among all those churches that he had planted in Galatia. You see, Paul, he refused to compromise the authority of his teaching, and we can see how adamant he was about, about it by simply the four words that he used. Paul, an apostle, not. Why would Paul start with such almost like negative kind of words? Because Paul knew that the truth and the validity of the gospel message hinged on one thing. The gospel message hinged on one thing. And that is where it came from. The origin. This wasn't Paul being defensive because he was challenged. How dare you say that? I'm offended that you would ever question me. It was not about that. This was a matter of upholding the authority of the gospel. He's like, you can do whatever you want with it. You can, you can talk smack about me. You can gossip on my back. You can slander my name. You can do all, you can throw me in jail, argue with me all you want, but never question where the, where the gospel has come from. Because the gospel has come straight from Jesus. And he's saying, Jesus is master. You know what I mean? I'm just a messenger. Jesus is the Lord. He is God. He is the authority. The gospel comes from him. This very message that I'm preaching to you all, the very message that Paul preached to all those cities in Galatia, he's saying it's not from man, it's not from anyone here on this earth, but it's from God, his son, Jesus. And I too believe that about myself. And anyone who teaches the word and, and shares the gospel, we are just a messenger. Turn to your neighbor and say that. You're just a messenger. For instance, I'll tell you, <clears throat> the reason why I speak on series rather than topical preaching, I had people come to me and say, Pastor David, can you do like a, ser like a, a series on like relationships? And I go, that sounds like a lot of fun. But maybe later, next time, no, no, I'm sorry, I won't. Can you do a series on sex or a series on whatever? And here's the reason why I, do, I don't do topical preaching. One reason, first, is it allows me to cover as much of the Bible as I can. Like, I've been your EM pastor for about four or five years. It's kind of shocking. During that time, we've covered Luke, Acts, Nehemiah, James, and now Galatians. About four or five years, and we cover almost five books. And there are 66 books in the Bible. So it's almost like one book per year. And my dream is to cover all 66 books of the Bible I'm about 30-something years old. It is possible. <laughs> so covering a series enables me to do that, Lord willing. But the second reason is because it keeps me from avoiding hot topics that might be controversial. But the reason why I can stand up here and teach and preach the Word of God is the same reason why you can too. And that is, it's not your message. You know what I'm saying? It's not your message. It's God's. It's not your truth. 
It's God's. It's not your authority. It's God's. Exodus 3.13, Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, God of your father has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent you. Brothers and sisters, when we declare the gospel to others, don't ever fear how that person may respond or even the efficacy of the gospel because the response of the individual and the work of the gospel message are both God's doing. Amen? He's going to do it. He's working through it. He will be the one to give them ears to hear and eyes to see and a mind to understand and a spirit to be transformed. It's not our job to do that. It's not our job to do that. Our job is plainly and to passionately declare what the gospel message is and trust God because the gospel message comes from Jesus. Now, if it was any, from any other source, man, you'd be standing on shaky, unstable ground. But it comes from Jesus. Therefore, declare it. Declare it boldly, powerfully, compassionately, lovingly because it comes from Jesus. My second and final point well, again, like you know me, I have several points underneath that. Is that the gospel announces grace. Turn to your neighbor and say that. The gospel announces grace. <clears throat> if you want a good book to read, by the way, if you, ever have, if you ever want to get recommendations, just shoot me an email, text, call me, Facebook me, whatever. And I'll, and I'll, um, I'll recommend, I will not loan you or lend you a book. I have too many books that are out. And there are some people here who shall remain nameless who still have it. Um, but I, I want to recommend a book here. It's a good book. It's by Philip Yancey. It's called What's So Amazing About Grace? I'm sure many of you guys have read it. It's an old book. It's a good read, though. And in his book, he describes what grace looks like in action. And actually, from this text, Apostle Paul addresses the same issue. There's a few things I want to say about the amazingness of grace, okay? Firstly, the gospel was announced by a man who was raised from the dead, who was, raised from, who was raised from the dead. Every other religion in the world has come from someone somewhere, and their leaders were, I'm sure, admirable people. And they, I'm sure, had displayed great wisdom too, and their life and death perhaps was even honorable, but none of them except the gospel was ever announced by a leader who had been risen from the dead. Only Jesus. Secondly, the gospel is amazing because of the story of the atonement. Now, many religions, many people speak of atonement in various forms, like making wrong things right. Other religions try to offer deals or ways to deal with sin, like making sure your, uh, your good deeds tip the scale or donating money to pay your eternal debts, so to speak. Perhaps even painful pilgrimages you might have to endure to satisfy your God, lowercase g, or even martyrdom. But none of those things will ever be enough because of the guilt that we have because of sin. That will never disappear. But in the law of Moses, God in his grace provides atonement through substitution. People were instructed a long time ago to sacrifice an animal whose shed blood would take the place of that guilty worshiper. But Jesus comes into the scene. And he gives himself to pay for our sins. He is the ultimate and final and wonderful sacrifice because through him, sacrifice never needs to be made or offered again. His sacrifice is sufficient for all who trust him.
It never, never runs out. His sacrifice cleanses us down to the roots of our sin and clears our conscience of any guilt and shame. His sacrifice removes forever the condemnation that you and I, that we deserve. Now the idea behind state penitentiaries or prisons is not just to punish criminals. Rather, they have a desire to reform them, to rehabilitate them. After all, not all criminals are rapists or murderers or many aren't for stupid decisions they've made or a lapse in judgment. But what these justice systems will always fall short in is they may have success in reforming or rehabilitating a criminal's behavior, somewhat at least, but that guilt, the crime of wrongdoing, of breaking the law, will forever be etched into their consciousness, no matter how many second chances they get. Now the amazing grace of the gospel is that the gospel does more than simply modify or change our behavior, but will clear our record of wrongdoing from the side of God for all eternity. Our acceptance into his presence will have no bearing on what we have done, but only if we have accepted what Christ has done. People, people who believe in Christ and the message of the gospel are the only ones who are truly, truly reformed, both externally, internally, and eternally. Now thirdly, the gospel is amazing grace because it speaks of our rescue. Okay, so if you're drowning, you don't need a lifeguard to throw you a book on how to survive drowning, right? No, of course not. You need that lifeguard to jump in and rescue you before you die. And that's exactly what Jesus does. That's why we call him Lord and Savior. Exactly. Christianity is a rescue religion. Just as the word rescue was used when God rescued Israel out of Egypt or when the Holy Spirit rescued Peter from Herod's jail or when the Lord rescued Paul from the mob. Verse 4 says that God will rescue us from the present evil age. Now this is different from atonement since atonement rescues us from the guilt of sin. So what does it mean to be rescued from the present evil age? It's not about rescue from this present world. We know that because as Christians, we're still living in the present world. We're here with everyone else. I mean, you're all living here right now, right? Now when Jesus first came, he didn't come as the Jews expected. All kingly and messianic, overthrowing the Roman government just like they all wanted. No, instead, Jesus, he came in humility. He came as baby Jesus. And he is right now, Apostle Paul is encouraging every single person here, though you are living in this age, keep your mind upon the glory of what is to come and live in light of that. Amen? That's what God is saying. So no matter how painful your life is or how much you are enduring, he says, remain in me and know that this is not the end. There is something that will come. Keep your mind, keep your hope set on that. You see, the gospel announces the amazing grace of our rescue. Praise be to God. Amen. Amen. Lastly, the gospel is amazing because it has nothing to do with us. It is not dependent on us. Turn to your neighbor and say that. It's not dependent on you. Now here's the thing. As we've been learning and talking about amazing grace, we've been saying that the gospel announces grace. And I say that intentionally because the gospel does not offer grace. Nor does the gospel encourage you to find grace. The gospel doesn't call you to accept grace. Certainly, we've talked that way sometimes because grace is definitely something we experience. But the truth is, the gospel announces salvation from God, which God has already accomplished through his son Jesus. And so we hear and embrace that salvation only when God gives us spiritual life. 
You get that? You can only embrace the gift of salvation when God has already worked in your life. But our faith does not make God's salvation happen. You can't just choose one day and say, I'm going to become saved. You can't do that. God's grace is what makes our faith happen. Do you have faith in Christ Jesus? Then that is the grace of God. This comes from verse 4. According to the will of God and for his glory. You see, faith does not happen based on our will or something we just kind of muster up to do. Just because you have an intellectual understanding of the gospel and you say, I believe in Jesus, I am committed to Jesus. No, you must be a recipient of God's grace to awaken us to receive salvation, believe and have faith. Now, let me further explain this by using the story from John chapter 11 of Lazarus who was raised from the dead to understand this. Lazarus had been dead for four days. Four days. Jesus orders the, t- the tombstone to be removed. But Lazarus' sister, they all go there and they're concerned. And they're saying, they're talking about the stench of the rotting flesh. Now, I have never personally smelled that. And I do recall one time I asked my wife, and I said, <clears throat> have you, because we were talking, it wasn't just like a casual conversation over dinner, okay? Um, <clears throat> I said, have you ever experienced, what, what does it smell like? And she's worked in the mortuary before. And she's had to open them, close the drawers, and do autopsies and so on and so forth with fresh people who just died and whatever. And I don't want to get too graphic. And I said, well, what is it like? And she says, you know what a uh, decaying, rotten flesh or body smells like. It's the most distinct smell I said, thank you, and I moved on. (laughs) The sister said, Jesus, no. He's been rotting in there for four days. There's going to be stench of rotting flesh. So Lazarus is clearly dead, way dead, deader than dead. So would you be comfortable saying that if Lazarus, even though he's dead, dead, completely dead, would you be comfortable saying, if, if Lazarus just believed in Jesus, he would rise from the dead? Would that make sense? Of course not. That's ridiculous. Lazarus could not believe because he was dead. Nevertheless, when Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth, come out. Lazarus, he got up and he came out. Not because he had in his dead cells, there was like one remaining alive living cell that said, yes, I believe. No, because it was Jesus who called him out. It was Jesus who chose him. It was Jesus who said, come out, come forth. Brothers and sisters, the Bible says that we are also all dead to our sins. We can't understand the gospel, not even on our best day. We don't even really hear it. It's just noise in our ears. I grew up in the church. I heard the gospel message from my youth pastor Every single Sunday. And yet for some reason, after 13 years or so, it was at that revival when I heard it from the guest speaker there, where they said nothing, anything, it was nothing different from what my pastor had been saying every single week. And yet for some reason, it was that moment, that encounter, it was those words that I heard that blew me away. 
And I fell on my knees and I cried out to God in sweet surrender and I repented and I gave up my entire life to him. I said, Lord, please forgive me. And I accepted Jesus Christ for the first time, last time, that night. You can't just want to understand the gospel. It has to be God's doing. Just by intellectual understanding, it won't make you believe it. Because none of us are able to hear and come to Jesus because we are really spiritually dead. But God, who according to his will and glory calls us to Jesus, is Jesus who regenerates us, who gives us new life, who gives us the faith to believe, who gives us a, heart, a new heart to obey. And so amazingly, we come forth from the dead to follow Jesus. And so brothers and sisters, if you have family members or brothers or friends or people that you know, coworkers, and you know that they are unsaved, Speak the gospel, share the gospel, love them, share your toast me, do all that you can possibly do. But never once get frustrated. Don't be discouraged at their lack of response or, or disbelief. The outcome and their spiritual transformation is in the hands of God. If you have anyone in your life, your parents, a sibling, anyone that you love or care about or whomever, just be a messenger like Apostle Paul and trust that the gospel message comes from Jesus. And he is the one who saves. Amen? Amen. The Christian life isn't about just getting peace right now. If we desire to grow in our faith purely for the reason of thinking that you'll be awarded in an easy life or come to a life, then you got the wrong understanding of why Jesus had come. Christian life is about picking up your cross. It's about obeying the word of God, about being countercultural, hating sin and loving truth, growing in a relationship with God, loving others, dying to yourself, preaching the gospel, pursuing the things of God and his kingdom. And the life that you receive that's in any way good or pleasing or easy or comfortable, then you can thank God because that's his grace. And it's nothing because we deserved it. In these brief few verses, and I end with this, Paul tells us what he's about to go into. That the authority of the gospel comes from Jesus. And that the gospel announces God's amazing grace. Grace is not an empty word because it's the very nature of the gospel, which is our only hope. Grace is the opposite of getting what we had paid for. And so as a result of God's grace, guess what happens? Grace and what unto you? Peace. As a result of grace, the Lord gives us peace. We receive peace with God, peace with one another, Peace within ourselves and one day peace on earth. But until then, it begins with the grace of God through the gospel message that comes straight from Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Perhaps that was a lot of information from just a few verses. if you know anything about the apostles and the writers of Scripture, you would know that the most important things are always mentioned up front. And he makes it as clear as day. He says, it is about Jesus. Get that whole notion out of your mind and your heart if you think that you, got, you have to perform or be excellent or be that best father or best husband or best brother or best sister or best mom, dad, whatever you want to call it, or the best worker 
You know, there's a, a famous missionary right now, and um, he's, he's really taking the world by storm, and he's going around sharing the gospel, and he's doing wonderful work. And, um, and I, I, I recall receiving this email from, it, it was a response of another woman, another mom, who was responding and talking about the mother of that missionary who she believes is, I'm sure, it's like, you're so proud, you should be so proud of your son, and, and my goodness, and the, and the entire email is essentially saying, I want to be like the mother of this missionary. And honestly, when I heard, when I heard that, when I read that, it kind of broke my heart. And that's, that's not to say that the mother did nothing of that mission. I'm sure she prayed day and night, fasted, and sought the Lord for, this, for her son's salvation, did everything she could possibly do, but is it to her credit? It is not. Is she the one who allowed her son's eyes to be open and for his heart to be soft, to not only hear but to accept the gospel of Jesus Christ? No, it was not. All credit goes to God. All credit goes to our, our Lord and Savior, Jesus he is the one who has saved you, and brothers and sisters, friends, if you don't know him, he is the one who will save you. He is the only one who can save you. Nothing else in this world can. If you have not entered into that relationship with him, like I said, you certainly can't force yourself, but you can certainly ask God and say, Lord, would you open my eyes, would you open my heart, that I may truly see you for who you are. I have heard Pastor David and I have heard other people from other churches speak of the gospel message. In fact, I could probably recite it by heart. But no, I know deep within me that I still don't know you. That you are still foreign to me. I am still a stranger to you. Friends, if that's where you're at right now, if that is your position before the holy God, then desperately I ask you before the day is up, Seek him. Seek the grace of God and the mercy of our Lord. And say, Lord, please, open my eyes. Ready my heart. That I may come to faith today, right now. And for those of you who do have a good relationship, genuine relationship with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, this question goes to you. How are you? Are you strengthening that relationship? Are you breaking it? Is your fellowship with him going well because you're obeying him? Or have you been neglecting him, forgetting him, rejecting him, ignoring him? Whether you're saved or unsaved, Let's cry out before the mercy seat of Christ and say, God, lavish me with your grace. I want to know you or I want to know you more. Let's take this time and pray. As we pray, we'll go into our final song.